The Department of Health and Human Services reports that over 100,000 children are sexually assaulted annually. Pediatricians and family practitioners must recognize and treat the child who is currently being abused. Physicians that treat adults must recognize the patient who was abused as a child and subsequently has medical or psychiatric issues. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University's Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. With me is Dr. Richard Baer, former president of Illinois Psychiatric Society and medical director for Medicare in Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, and Ohio. Dr. Baer and I are discussing his recently released book, Switching Time, which deals with his treatment of a woman with 17 personalities and a suicidal depression as a result of childhood sexual abuse. Dr. Baer, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much, Lauren. So most people, I think, perceive sexual abuse as primarily something that happens to adolescents, but the patient in your book was abused starting as an infant. How frequent an occurrence is that? Well, if the abuser is a father or a close male relative, I think the opportunity for abuse starting at a very early age is more likely. Also, depending on how primitive mentally the abuser is, they'll be a predator for you know children of a younger age. Because the younger child can't tell anybody? And not only that, because their preference for selection is for a completely helpless victim. That's why they choose children in the first place is because they're so helpless. And you mentioned a father, of course, has access. How often is the abuser a family member or someone known and living with the abused child as opposed to an outsider? The statistics show it's at least half the time it's a father or some male relative. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we all know that with an infant, intercourse is not the way that the abuse is occurring. So what does constitute sexual abuse? And do you think that sometimes there is abuse that people don't even interpret it as abuse because it's not intercourse? Well, you know, abuse can take several forms. And, you know, vaginal or anal penetration is one form. And even though that can't be penile penetration, but you could do different kinds of implements or fingers, whatever the orifice can manage can be a form of abuse, but there are other forms as well. There can be simple exploration, rubbing, rubbing the male genitals on the infant's or the young child's genital area. So really any kind of inappropriate touching by someone who is in a sense in power over a helpless child who can't say no. Right, and it's also exposure by exhibitionism, taking pictures. There are lots of ways to sexually abuse someone without actual penetration. So if you have an infant that's abused and then the abuse stops by the time that they're a little bit older, and so if there's really no independent recollection of the abuse, does it still have repercussions later in life? The infant, you know, may not remember episodes. People usually think that the acquisition of language is about the same time that the earliest recalled memories are. So that's usually around two or three or so that you might have some early memories. But certainly what it could interfere with are the very basic feelings of trust for caretaking adults. You know, that will turn up as a kind of nonspecific problem later on in life. But if your early experiences of parental figures involve pain and exposure and things that are traumatic, even if the specific events aren't remembered, that will have a lasting effect. I mean, I'm kind of curious because... Obviously, if you find that someone is being abused and is a baby at the time that it's happening, then you know it's happening. But when you're treating an adult, 
who you find after the fact was abused as a baby. How did you even find that out? How did you know that she'd been abused as a baby? Well, on Karen's part... Karen, the subject, right. She remembered the abuse for as long as she could remember. So that took her, you know, to, according to her memories, to when she was two or three. And again, as far as she knew, that was already common then. So we surmised that, you know, it, it went on before and that at some point she was able to actually recall the episodes. But by that time, the episodes had already reached some maturity because she had the sense that, you know, this had had already gone before. Right. In your book, of course, Karen suffered from a multiple personality disorder, which is quite rare and I'm sure not typical of people that were abused early in childhood. Do you think that there's a general profile, if you will, of an adult who's been abused as a child? Is there something that a physician should look for that might trigger the fact that, oh, this is someone who was abused? The effect on the person has so much to do on how traumatic it was. What, you know, what degree of terror and horror and, you know, feeling that their body was going to be damaged and mutilated. If that stuff is high, then there'll be much more of a post-traumatic kind of experience later on in life. And when you say later on in life, is this something that manifests itself frequently shortly after? Or? It could certainly manifest itself in adolescence or adulthood, particularly when they tried to mature sexually and get on with life and start having relationships. And is this generally a problem in terms of future relationships? I'm, I'm wondering if often that may be how a patient presents, is to say that she's unable to have physical intimacy I know that's what I see in my practice as a gynecologist, that very often someone will come in and tell me that they're unable to have intercourse, that they have an unconsummated marriage, and it's they themselves don't even realize that this is a result of, of earlier abuse. Correct. Now, usually they do have a memory of it. it. These memories can be dissociated off, but that would be not my first assumption, because I think that's much more unusual uh, to try to ferret out you know, lost memories of being abused. That's, that's a dangerous path to go down. But usually they have some memory of it, even though they may have not thought about it for a long time. There may be some male relative, again, who is responsible. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Richard Baer. So in the adult who was abused and is not forthcoming with her physician, what medical complaints might she present with that the physicians start to think maybe this was an abused woman? I think the most common ones would be difficulty, as you say, consummating an intimate relationship, but they could be just general vague medical complaints, headache, abdominal pains, difficulty with PMS, menstruation, anything associated with sexual issues. On the other hand, you may find the exact opposite, too. You may find women who are involved in promiscuity or prostitution have also been abused, and they are coping with it in a completely different way. Now, how often do you think that the patient who comes in was abused, knows that she was abused, is dying to talk about this abuse, but doesn't really know how to bring it up and is waiting for the physician to ask, as opposed to someone who really doesn't know why she's feeling the way she is? Well, I think if a woman comes in and has some apprehension about the examination, wants to know and wants reassurance that she's okay down there and that there's nothing wrong, that's a real tip-off, I would think, to ask you know, if she'd ever suffered any harm to her genitals. I think that's, again, one of those vague questions that the patient can interpret in any way they want. I mean, that could be rape, that could be something she did to herself, that could be a whole myriad of things, but the question is vague enough so that the patient can interpret it in any way that suits them, and you might get an initial conversation. And then if it turns out that it is something like a history of childhood sexual abuse or 
whatever it may be, then the physician can make the appropriate referral. You know, I think it's one thing for a physician to suspect that maybe they're dealing with someone who's abused and then go into those sorts of questions. I think the other big issue is, given how widespread this problem is, and a lot of people say that this 100,000 children is a gross underestimation. So given how widespread this is, is this something that you think every physician should be screening every patient for? And, you know, we're all kind of, quite frankly, in a busy practice. We can't screen everybody for everything, and it's hard to, to know how to hone in on what's important and what's not. But is this important enough and widespread enough that every single patient should be screened for this? And if that's the case, how should that best be done? Well, I think there are several ways to do it, and a lot of it depends on what sort of practice that you have. If you do a general medical questionnaire as a part of a new intake for a new patient, I think some gentle questions associated with rape or unwanted experiences as a child, those on a questionnaire, if you're involved in doing pelvic exams, whether you're a general practitioner, that is a time when I would think a woman would be particularly prone to confide questions and apprehensions about that. And then some more pointed questions about, you know, have you ever had non-consensual sex? Have you ever had sex against your will? Uh, Have you ever suffered any damage to your genitals that you're concerned about? Whatever it might be. And the questions really need to be vague because if you ask a pointed question, like, did any man ever rape you? They might have had all kinds of other things done to them that in their mind doesn't really constitute rape. And then they'll answer, no, and you're, you're lost. That's why the question has to be very vague and open-ended so that they can come up with any answer that remotely fits the question. And that's what you want them to do. And what you want to do when you ask that question is immediately after you ask it, you have to look at them and see if they're thinking. Because they may pause and they say no. And then, but you don't know what was going on with them just before they said no. You might say, I saw you thinking about something. And then shut up and wait for what they say next. See, in my practice, I call these the hand on the door questions. And my question is, is there anything else with my hand on the door? And that's when I get the, okay, and there you are. That's right. And they think there's not enough time to go into it which is a safety net for them. But then you sit down again and say, okay, well, tell me about that. The other quandary that physicians have is, of course, patient-doctor confidentiality is a agreement that we make with our patient. But yet there is, and correct me if I'm wrong, there is some kind of an illegal obligation of a physician who's just been told that someone is in a sexually abusive relationship. So what do you do if you're a physician and the 17-, 18-year-old girl comes to you and says... My father is raping me every night, and she's only told you this because she is sure of your confidentiality, but there is a legal obligation, is there not? There can be, and you need to know what in your locality are the laws and the requirements for reporting. Sometimes it's state-specific. The different agencies to whom you might report may be different. So you you need to know that. The big problem is with children. With someone who's 17, you'll need to know the absolute requirements in your area. Somebody who is older who's been hurt in the past or is being abused currently, there is not the requirement to report, but you should definitely urge them to take actions to report. Karen, the the subject of my book, was in an abusive marriage almost the entire time she was in treatment with me. And did she report that? She finally did, but she was afraid of reprisals. And she was afraid if she reported, then she would be beat up even worse. Finally, she got strong enough to take the steps to report And much to her surprise, then the husband backed off. The second time he got reported, he was sent to jail. And he was much better after that. 
but she finally divorced him. But getting a, an adult woman out of an abusive relationship is not always very easy. No, it's quite difficult. And while Karen, of course, was an extreme example of what the results of a sexually abusive relationship can uh, result in, I think as physicians we need to really understand that this affects a huge segment of the population even if they don't end up with 17 multiple personalities. Right. Helping an abused woman is not a one-shot deal. Uh, a lot of times these women need you know, continuous support and encouragement to take the steps they need to take, and sometimes referral to you know, people who are you know, doing that full-time is, is a really valuable thing. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University's Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. You've been listening to Advances in Women's Health, on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.